Here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Joining me is the super, terrific, and 99 times out of 100 happy, Stephanie uh, Palmer. No, 100% when I get to do this with you. Oh, Cheers. Just such a sweet <laughs> How are you, Steph? You all right? I'm just uh, jiggy. How are you? Jiggy. Okay. I'm not, I, I wouldn't class myself as jiggy, but I'm English. We don't, I don't think we, we're allowed to be jiggy. You're not think, allowed uh, to jig. No, I think better than average. Is that Irish? Isn't that Irish? Irish? Is, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, definitely. I think okay. better than better than average is how we Brits exclaim that we're doing fantastically well. We're rather more taciturn than you lot. Yes, you as definitely. you know, now. <laughs> so look, we have joining us today on the Super Terrific Happy Hour a very, very special guest, a good friend of yours, and someone who I've been so excited to talk to for such a long time, and I, I would never steal your thunder. So why don't you let people know who we're about to talk to? Oh no, I mean. I, I don't know if I would call him a good friend, but I was fortunate enough to make this man's acquaintance back at the, um, actually, after the housing bubble had begun to deflate, but people were still deep in denial and uh, just had pangs of nostalgia as I watched uh, bubbles being inflated all over again and wanted to reach back out. And that man is Sam Zell, none other than the one and only. And I don't know that he really requires any further introduction other than he, just he, by he name. He does not. <laughs> he, d- he does not. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's bring him in and let's talk to Sam Zell. Let's do it. Hey, Sam, how are you? I'm terrific. Long time no see. Yeah, right. Uh, you haven't aged a day. <laughs> uh, Sam, have you met Grant before? I know that you know uh, who he is from Real Vision, but I don't know if yeah. the two of you have ever met. I don't think we've crossed paths. Hi, Sam. We, we haven't. <laughs> we, 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 I, we almost met at a Tiger 21 conference a couple of years ago, uh, ah. but, uh, but not <laughs> quite. It's great to meet you. And thank you so much for doing this. This is really, uh, I'm excited for it. More than uh, any of the other ones we've done so far. So Yeah, especially when we just talk to each other. Right. <laughs> I'll try and make it interesting. Oh, I'm not worried about that at all. No, exactly. Oh my gosh. So I guess we should just dive in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll just dive straight in. So, you know, to sort of set the table, Sam, as you know, the reason that I suddenly started uh, thinking I really wanted to connect with you, I mean, it's always great to chat with you, but I've been kind of waxing nostalgic as I watch the Fed inflate these bubbles all over the place. And it just brought me back to when we first met at the sort of, I think at that point, the um, housing bubble was already deflating. And it was, um, you know, the question as to how bad it was going to get and what the impact would be on the financial sector. But it was just um, a fascinating time. And I thought, 
what a great time now to get your perspective on what's going on and the similarities and differences that you see and where you're finding opportunities and and all of that. So thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm really excited to have you. And um, I guess we could start with that first obvious question. You know, when you, when you look around, do you see any um, echoes to that period back in uh, 2007? Well, I think that uh, uh, we're seeing a lot of inflationary pressure. Um, I'm a little skeptical about whether the word transitory <laughs> is an appropriate adjective to talk about, uh, you know, what we're seeing. But we're seeing, um, you know, tremendous pressure, particularly on wages. Um, I don't know where the people have gone, but uh, they're not there. And... Uh, you know, everybody is talking about how difficult it is to fulfill uh, slots and keep everything working. And to some extent, uh, we're getting away with uh, lesser staffing uh, in some of our businesses without any complaints, which I find kind of an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> so our margins are actually improving because we can't hire the people. And, uh, and there's an acknowledgement that, you know, in the, the restaurants that are open three days a week because they can't get people. Uh, it's very much in, you know, just like we talk about inflationary expectations. We're also talking about expectations where everybody's having trouble fulfilling uh, their needs. And so expectations of, service are going down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I had conversations in the last week about, you know, delays and, in, in, you know, supply chain stuff. And, um, I, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago, people would be tearing out their hair and screaming uh, about these, these supply chain problems. Uh, there's an acceptance that things are screwed up. Mm-hmm. And one of my people flew out, working with an export business on the West Coast, and he flew out to California yesterday. And as he was landing, he took a picture of Long Beach Harbor, where it's just full of, of ships waiting to get unloaded. Hmm. Well, you know, that's a that's a very it's a very vivid picture of the backup in the in the you know, in the, in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Maybe that makes it much easier for it to accept it, but it's certainly pushing up prices. I was just going to say something. It's interesting. We, we, we're talking about parallels between 2006, seven and now, but also what you're talking about there, there are kind of eerie recollections of the 70s and the similar sort of wage mm-hmm. price pressure and supply chain stuff. So when you, when you compare those two and that idea that transitory may not be the right word, what, what kind of images does it conjure up from your experiences back in the 70s? Well, I'm among the few who are old enough to have been around in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess what I would say is that uh, um, inflation is an event and it's a mindset. And uh, so far, we've only had the event. Um, 
if it goes along too much further, it's going to become a mindset. On the other hand, we're sitting here running all kinds of different businesses. And the message that we're giving our management teams is, are you raising prices fast enough to keep up with the increase in your costs? Yeah. You know, the pressure on labor. I mean, we own a 4,000-bed hospital chain where, uh, you know, the nurse compensation issue is, you know, anywhere from $40 an hour to $200 an hour hmm. and in great shortage. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of these things that are going on in a lot of different places. And uh, are we are we catching up or, you know, you know how many how many times do you get to ask for a price increase if the first time you didn't ask for enough? Um, before we get too far into this road of what's going on today versus prior periods, I'd love to kind of backtrack and start at the beginning with you because your your life and your whole career are just so fascinating, and how you got into the business to begin with. I mean, I was going to say real estate, but you're in so many businesses now, but you you started out in real estate or actually before that you were peddling Playboy magazine. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about how you became the phenomenal entrepreneur that you are today and sort of your, how your family history plays into that. Well, I'm for sure an immigrant's son. I was born... Uh, three or four months after my parents came to this country. Uh, they escaped uh, living in uh, Western Poland. The only way escape was across Russia and Japan into the United States, which took them 18 months. Hmm. And uh, so I grew up in a very, uh, very interesting household. Hmm. Uh, you know, my father thought that streets of the United States were paved with gold uh, and not because it was easy, but because there was opportunity yeah. and that nobody was stopping him from doing whatever he wanted to do mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to uh, you know Europe, etc where there were all kinds of limitations and uh, you know being Jewish or whatever that case might have been. But uh, uh, very early in my uh, life, I, I recognized that I was different. Uh, I just wasn't the same as everybody else. And I'm, I'm certain that I attribute that to growing up in a house where uh, you know, people were in this country for months when I was born. And uh, so, you know, uh, they, they they set standards and expectations that were very different from my friends. I mean, my father's uh, you know favorite comment was, "You had enough fun, study, read, uh, you know, get get smarter." Uh, but you know that's that was very much of a European uh, um, you know uh, uh, sentence that you kept saying over and over again. You know, when I was in high school, uh, on a Friday night, I went to the basketball game. So the next week, I wanted to go to the next basketball game. My father's response was, 
You already went to Alaska. <laughs> Why would you want to go to a city? Right. <laughs> you a home study. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and then, of course, I really wasn't a great academic. Uh, I had a peculiar capability for seeing opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, uh, when I first moved to the suburbs um, for the first year, I would recommute back into the city every day uh, to go to Yeshiva, which was a high-end Hebrew school. And uh, I, being a 12-year-old, you know, living in a world where we could really be, you know, left alone, I mean, I wandered around the city and I discovered that uh, a guy named Hugh Hefner put out a new magazine called Playboy. <laughs> and Playboy was only sold in the uh, newsstands underneath the railroad stations or the L tracks. And it was way too risque for uh, normal uh, distribution <laughs> system. And certainly none of it was, was acceptable in the suburbs. So anyway, I bought a copy and it's 50 cents and I read it on the way home. And I was really upset. I showed it to a friend of mine. And this friend of mine said, wow, that's really terrific. <laughs> I want to sell it. Anyway, I sold him my 50 cent. Uh, Playboy for three dollars, and <laughs> I went into the export, you know, import export. Right. <laughs> and the, the key was maintaining the margins. But um, I've always been, you know, very sensitive to opportunity, and and uh, and I, I, I think you know a, a, a very high uh, caution or no or thought process toward the word risk. Uh, I've always, uh, as I said before, I wasn't much of an academic. Uh, I was good enough to get into one of the best law schools in the country. I was good enough to get into one of the best schools, just barely, but got in. And uh, and I was able to take advantage of stuff, and which ultimately led me to real estate, where uh, uh, a friend of mine was living in a house, and I owned the house. They bought the house next door, and at the end of school, they going to rip the two houses down and build a 15-unit apartment building. And I said to my friend, gee, you know, we're students. We understand. Uh, why don't we put your money doing, you know, we're managing the apartment building, you know, in return for free apartments. And that's what we did, and they bought our act. And so that's how we got involved in the real estate business. Huh? And uh, we were very good at it. And, uh, you know, pretty soon we had, uh, you know, three buildings and six buildings and 12 buildings and uh, uh, and then started buying buildings. And, uh, and meanwhile, I went to law school. And, uh, you know, academically, uh, I did just well enough to, you know, graduate in the top quarter of my class, uh, but, but law school was the, the worst bore of my lifetime. I, mean, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't even conceive of what that was like. And then I went out to try and get a job. And I figured, you know, I'm get a job, I'm going to put on my resume, you know, what I've been doing for the last three years. And it wasn't, you know, law school. 
And so I talked about all my real estate activities and I had 43 interviews and 43 rejections. Uh, and then somebody finally gave me a job and I lasted four days. Uh, and in the morning of the fifth day, I went into the senior partner and I said, you know, as only a you know 24 year old would say, uh, I just don't think this is a good use of my time. <laughs> and so I just went, he says, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to go back and uh, do deals just like I did before. And uh, his response was very interesting. He says, it sounds like a good thing. We'll, you know, stay here. We'll do a little work and uh, we'll invest in your deals. <laughs> and wow. they did. Phenomenal. Nice. And that lasted, lasted for a year. He can't, he can't be inside of a meritocracy where somebody gets paid, you know, based on performance. Sam, Sam, let, let me ask you, because um, I think there isn't a man alive who hasn't had a great idea like your your Playboy scam you're going there. <laughs> we, we, we've all had those ideas, but but very few people actually either have the courage or the sense to actually follow that and, and actually do it. We all go, you know, it wouldn't be great to do that, and then no one ever does. What What is it, even as a young man, that drove you to actually follow through and, and do that? I, the only way I can answer your question is by telling you that I had an enormous amount of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and by the way, that's, you know, I mean, what's so unique about my business is that my business has changed every three mm-hmm. or four years yeah, over a 50-year period. And stuff we did, uh, you know, in, in the late 60s, uh, we're not doing anything like that anymore. And, and so we constantly, you know, not still, no matter how good our idea is, somebody's going to copy it. Right. And so, you know, we, we, we develop our ideas. We take advantage of our situations. We, we're very, very sensitive to uh, what's going on in, in the world around us. Uh, I think we're, you know, very high up there on the observer level, and uh, and and look, take advantage of those situations, and and not get caught up in uh, you know we have this uh, you know Judeo Christian uh, uh, capitalist view that competition is really terrific, and I really believe competition is really terrific for you, me. I want to know. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And if I can't have a monopoly, at least I want to have an oligopoly. Yeah. But competition is destructive, really destructive. And, you know, great ideas uh, have, have been, uh, you know, morphed into nothing uh, just by virtue of, you know, too much kind of look at the WeWork situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's a business that, uh, you know, I watched start out in, in the late 50s. And uh, the idea, simple idea was rent a whole floor at a discounted rate and then re-sublet it to little users. Uh, And everyone, every single business like that has eventually gone bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, the office supply, oversupply situation knocks down a business. And here was one that was going to, you know, come up with a completely different solution 
And yet the facts were the same. So they shouldn't renamed it, not we work, they should rename it savings and loan. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> short-term leases and long-term liability. Right. Uh, well, one of the things that, you know, as an observer from the outside, I would say is integral to your tremendous success is that you don't put yourself ahead of the business. You have a line in your book about how people let the brand appear bigger or they think their brand is bigger than their performance. And it seems... Sounds like, it sounds like an ex-president. <laughs> it sounds... I mean, that's such an amazing... That resonated so deeply with me because you see that um, people who are very successful who keep playing the same hand over and over and aren't chameleons. They don't change and adapt to the different environments as you have over your entire career. Um, that is such a gift. Do you, I mean, I don't know how, how do you explain how you do that? How, how are you so flexible and willing to, you know, put yourself sort of second and say, you know, I'm not just a real estate guy. I can go out and and make sure that I'm doing the best I can do in whatever business it is. Well, but I, I really think that uh, it comes down to kind of, for lack of a better word, simplistic ideas hmm. that uh, in, 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 in you want to talk about simplistic ideas, it's being scared. I mean, how about just simple concept of being scared? And, and I don't mean scared where you're shaking, you know, you know, in your boots, but but really concerned about change and how things are working, and uh, and and um, and a willingness to let a great deal go by. In other words, yeah. uh, you know, there have been a number of deals in my career um, where. Uh, you know, I was wrong, you know, in terms just like, just like the number of years where I was wrong and paid for it. There also, you know, miss, I missed great opportunities, but that's okay. Uh, I got enough opportunities <laughs> and, and those opportunities are really defined in very simple. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like my criteria for hiring people. Um, I'm not looking for the guy with the highest IQ. Uh, give me a, a, a you know a above average IQ and, and a high level of motivation, and I'm going to you know transform that person into a very successful you know entity. Unless and unless of course I want to design rocket engines or uh, or biotech this or that. Right. Uh, you know. <laughs> But that's that's uh, yeah. you. I you wouldn't hire me for that job. I promise yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's been, been a lot of jobs and you know, a lot of situations where you know the the I'm not I'm not willing to take uh, that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. So I so I avoided care. But supply and demand, market share, uh, you know, you know, recognizing that you know one of the greatest lies in the, in the world is. Uh, build a better mousetrap and they'll come to it. Uh, that really is just an incredible lie. Everything is sold. Everything is sold. And if you can't sell whatever your ideas are, they die by the wayside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and so true. Certainly been, certainly been lots of cases like that. 
how do you come up with your ideas? And like, how do you just, how did you decide I want to get into the logistics business? I want to own logistics companies. I mean, do you, yeah. do you in the morning pick up the wall street journal and, and find ideas on the back page or where, how do you get your, your ideas on what new businesses to get into yeah. and what to sell? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, Without question, um, I'm a voracious reader. And I read, uh, you know, four or five newspapers a day and Economist and uh, 13D and all kinds of different things. Uh, and I have a kind of a unique ability to assess what I'm reading and, and, and separate the wheat from the, from the, from the straw. And, and understand kind of what elements of it, you know, of what I'm reading have have relevance, and how logical they are, and um, and as much as I'd like to tell you, people constantly ask me questions like, "Well, what markets are you interested in?" Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> um, the reality is that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of every transaction. That gets done, gets done as a result of a third party deciding to do something. Hmm. Right. Uh, I just don't believe, you know, logistics is that well, let's go find our logistics companies. Uh, we can have a positive view on logistics, but inevitably the transactions that get done are the ones where someone is motivated to, uh, to, uh, achieve a subjective, a, a particular objective. We've done three big uh, logistics deals in the last year, the last two years, and uh, I think they're going. I hope they're going to be wonderful deals. They certainly have been so far. Um, but you know, in each each one of those three cases, we were really. Uh, dealing with a completely different motivation, and that is generational change. Mm-hmm. In other words, in each case, you had a family uh, or two families who controlled the business, mm-hmm. and uh, and they had two people in the business and six people waiting for a check. And uh, we, we provided the liquidity uh, and, the, and the skills in order to make those businesses much more effective. And uh, the results have been very, very positive, you know, and that's just a, another different version. And in each case, um, I think there was a private equity sale that they could have made uh, that would have been better for them hmm. uh, than the deal they made with us. Uh, but, but you know, most people don't understand that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, beyond the, the financial return, uh, you know, people are motivated by their legacy and, uh, and, you know, and they don't want to spend 50 years building a company and selling it to somebody who's going to strip it mm-hmm. down and sell it to somebody else. And so that's kind of a niche we've you know, stepped into over the last three or four years as we've seen a real need for us, us kind of investors. Hmm. Sam, uh, of your years, and clearly from the conversation so far, going all the way back to your childhood, you've had this 
innate ability to spot opportunities. And you also are kind of very well known and respected for your ability to time exits. Yeah, and, and from what you've said so far, a lot of that feels like it's just A, common sense, and B, a feeling of when either the competition's getting too hot or the risks are getting too high, that's when you'll exit. So given the fact that some of those clearly are, are just things you, you've been gifted with as a young man and you've nurtured over the years, have there been any kind of character traits along the way that you've had to try and smooth off? Any things that got you into trouble or, or caused you to make errors in your early days that you've managed to kind of uh, you know, push aside as you've gotten older and more experienced? I'm not sure I can make the distinction between early days and late days. <laughs> um, but I think I can identify the fact that staying power is the name of the game. Um, I've always had great confidence in my ability to deal with the situation as long as I have enough time to do so. You know, one of the mantras here is no surprises. In other words, we don't kill the messenger, but we don't want any surprises. So having said that, you know, I did the Tribune deal, and that was an unfortunate and you know, a huge failure. And, uh, you know, we underwrote the deal with uh, the assumption of 6% suppression in rates uh, over the first five years, and instead we have 30. Uh, unfortunately, nothing you can do about that. Yeah. But clearly, we didn't have, we, the deal would never have made sense if we had been required to create the staying power for that kind of a drop in revenue. So there are always these, these things that are relevant to, to my thinking, but staying power has always been uh, a relevant issue. And availability, not commensurate with staying power, is availability of capital. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always run my businesses with the idea that I'm a giant consumer of capital and therefore have to deal with, you know, not only my past or present and future, but my past to create a scenario where I'm a very likely candidate for people to lend to mm -hmm. or invest with. Well, that kind of brings us, it's a good segue into the current landscape and, and world we're seeing today because, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, availability of capital, let's say, has become incredibly uh, plentiful thanks to all the monetary and fiscal policies. But then you're dealing with this question um, as to, you know, sustainability, the other topic you talked about. And it seems like we're now pushing the limits of, of how far we can continue to have this sort of profligate policy and sustain these various bubbles. I mean, how are you investing around that today? Has it changed anything in the way that you look at your businesses or uh, the way you think about where things are headed in the, in the near future? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, first, first of all, you know, we don't know what's going to happen over the next few weeks in Congress. Uh, if, God forbid, the entire $3.5 billion 
Trillion. Trillion. Trillions, trillions. Right, exactly. If that were approved, um, I would have a very, very negative Mm -hmm. response. And I would think that we are running into a a brick wall of uh, inflationary expectations Mm -hmm. and too much capital. I don't think that's what's going to happen. How much smaller than that? Maybe not at all. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but that'll have an impact on it. Um, As a result, uh, we're probably a little more conservative than we normally would be. Uh, It's foolishness not to recognize the fact that we're you know, uh, you know, highest margins and highest prices Mm -hmm. uh, in history. And uh, at the same time, in every one of our businesses, we're seeing enormous pressure on wages across the board. And uh, that's a big, you know, that's, you know, and, and, you know, wages is a little bit like shorting a stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no guarantee as to where it stops. Yeah. Because it's an unlimited viewpoint. Yeah. So I think I think caution uh, has been very much a mantra of late. Uh, we've taken uh, a number of deals that maybe a year ago we would have taken a equity position. Now we're only taking a preferred position, uh, and that may not be enough coverage. You um, recently bought gold. What was the what was the idea behind that? Well, I mean, what what's going on in the whole world, okay. not just in the United States, is the debasement of currency. Yeah. Um, I bought gold because added to it because uh, I think that is part of a, a diversification recognition that every country in the world, not just the mm-hmm. United States, is printing more fiat currency. Sooner or later, that translates into the price of gold. Mm-hmm. And so in a very broad sense of diversification, that, from my perspective, made sense. Do you think if they actually do go through with this $3.5 trillion budget, um, would you be expanding your position in gold? Or is that just now you feel like you've got you've got that there and you're set and you're just going to have that be part of your yeah. allocation? Every, yeah, my attitude <laughs> is that every day I reset my expectations. <laughs> uh, Sam, uh, given the fact that um, wages is such a, problem uh, and an increasing problem and that obviously is common to just about every industry are there any industries where you still think there might be some value or just the fact that wages is such a universal input cost that it really puts a line through so many things you might want to invest in your question is very much like the one i referred to a while ago about markets um no deals that happen happen because this particular uh, segment of the industry is going to do well. It happened because of a set of circumstances 
family breaking up, uh, another problem somewhere else where something comes up and you're then confronted with an opportunity to do something uh, that you might otherwise have done. Uh, and you wouldn't have done by designating an industry, but the right. industry at that price, under those circumstances, becomes a very attractive, uh, complete, you know, package. How, how do you deal with bandwidth problems? Because you must get shown so many opportunities, and I'm sure every one of them is represented to you as the greatest opportunity <laughs> you're going to see. How, how do you? Yeah, right. So how do you how do you manage the bandwidth and filter that down? Is it is it a numbers game? Uh, just the, the amount of people you have looking no, at it? Or? I think that, um, you know, first of all, I don't really answer your question. So let's, be, let's begin on that basis. <laughs> um, I think that there is an enormous, uh, enormous um, filtering process that begins with eliminating deals that I can't understand. Okay. In other words, we don't, uh, in other words, if I have one standard, it would be we don't do anything that if things got bad, Sam couldn't run. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Now, I don't want to run anything. It's not, <laughs> it's not my cup of tea. But, you know, four or five times in my career, something has happened where I've been called upon to step in and make the decisions with reference to running a company. So therefore, we don't invest in biotech. We don't invest right. in uh, you know, rocket engines, uh, et cetera. So that's kind of the, the starting point of limiting the bandwidth. And then the second thing is simplicity. Um, I get pitched literally all day long. And uh, I tell everybody, you can't, tell me everything I need to know in two sentences. Hmm. It's too complicated. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Too complicated for me. Uh, now, you know, it seems to me, based on my experience, that almost every good idea doesn't require multiple steps. It requires conviction, understanding, and recognition of the shortest distance being two points is a straight line. Right. In the uh, category of trying to keep it simple and being able to explain it in two sentences, I immediately think of cryptocurrency because I don't understand it and I certainly can't explain it in two sentences. So I'm, I'm very curious on your thoughts, if you have any, on on the uh, excitement about cryptocurrencies right now. I, I think you just enunciated my Okay. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not uh, the only one. <laughs> I've tried. I've tried to understand it. Uh, I've tried to, you know, identify its relevance. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand what it's trying to do. Uh, it doesn't seem to be doing it with uh, any efficiency. And every time you turn around, there's another scandal. So, uh, at least at this moment. I've stayed out of this whole arena. And, you know, as I had said earlier, every now and then, you know, I'll miss out on something. And I'm comfortable and happy to out. miss it. So yeah. Yeah. If I miss yeah. it out on cryptocurrency, yeah. next. I feel the same way.
Uh. So obviously, the, the the monetary policy of the last twenty years, as as an entrepreneur and as a as you say a heavy user of capital, has been an incredible tailwind for 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 doing deals and and putting businesses together. As you hear this talk about a taper, how does that make you rethink what you might be planning on doing in the in the next sort of two or three years, or is that something that you would wait until you saw meaningful steps? I.e., you don't think that they they can taper and you think monetary policy is going to remain loose for a considerable amount of time? Well, I think that uh, the numbers suggest that monetary policy will get tighter, but not very much tighter. And the ability of the government to service its debt uh, mm-hmm. is limited. Limits. You know, you couldn't go for 25 years at an average interest rate. Uh, risk for interest rate at five point six percent. Yeah, you couldn't go back to five point six percent without bankrupting the company, the country. Uh, yes, uh, you know, a thirty-year period of lower interest rates has benefited the entrepreneurial skill set, but it also tells you that there's the other side of the coin, and that is that when the cost of capital gets too cheap. Uh, the entrepreneur responds differently. Yeah. At least the entrepreneur says, eh, if I don't do it today, I'll do it tomorrow. If I got to wait a little longer for something, I'll wait a little longer. You think the pension and liabilities have doubled because interest rates are going from four to two? Uh, I don't think so. You know, and so I think there's a lot of elements here that. Uh, uh, you'd be foolish to make judgments on. I'm, I know this doesn't necessarily segue smoothly, but I'm just dying to know, given what's happening in China with Evergrande, if you have any thoughts about that as you observe what's unfolding there. Well, it's just a bigger example. I mean, real estate industry has a long, long history of lack of discipline. <laughs> and it's it's contributed to by the fact that, you know, if you ask anybody on the street, you know, where would you put your money to be safe? Real estate. Uh-huh. So, uh, I mean, the only difference here is that Evergrande is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, you, you don't remember all the home builders and all the real estate mm-hmm. developers that went broke, you know, starting with uh, Trammell Crow. I mean, you know, the biggest of all, uh, over the evolution of the growth of a country. And if you think about it, China has gone through a big growth. Uh, it's been undisciplined. It's created a lot of complete competing factions. In other words, you know, the real estate developer is enticed by the government one day, mm-hmm. by local government the next day, uh, by the stock market the third day. And uh, so I think that none of it's particularly surprising. The scope of it is really, you know, having $3 billion worth of debt for one company uh, with no, you know, thousands and thousands of people who paid down part of the cost of the unit, but have no, you know, no legal right to do anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how that unfolds? Poorly. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and I think that, uh, 
you know, some, I, I don't think the government can let it go down. Uh, I think the first victim will be the company itself. Um, and I think it, there's probably you know, more negative in, in the story of that company than going forward. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, over the next few years, the company kind of disbands and, and breaks up into smaller companies. Uh, you know, the, the issue of scale in real estate, something that I spend a lot of time on, and um, have, nobody's ever really proved that scale works. So, you know, you, you, with, and that challenges the whole question of, you know, are you better off with a smaller company that focuses on particular productivity uh, if, if you're not getting any scale by, uh, by growing the size of it? Hard for people to acknowledge. Yeah. Right. 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 Bigger is always better, they say. <laughs> always. Sam, you you you're always described when we read about the newspapers as you know investor, Sam Sell, but you're you're also a businessman. You you run these businesses. Um, and that requires a longer term strategic mindset and a longer term way of thinking about things. But we kind of live in a world where everybody's attention, everybody's focus is becoming compressed and everything's about the news cycle in the moment and things flare up and die down very, very quickly. How do you juggle those two, that, that pressure in a, in a short-term oriented world with the, the requirements of having a longer-term focus on really everything that you, you touch? My first reaction to your question is the word discipline. Um, you know, there have been lots and lots of different things that I've had opportunities to invest in over a long period of time. And, uh, and the ones that I've tried to stay away from are the ones that are relatively short term. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think real money is made by long term. I mean, I just sold a company the last year that I controlled for 37 years. Uh, you know, and made a fortune. You know, I'm about to sell another one uh, that we've controlled for 20 years. Now, maybe during all those 20 years, we didn't do great. But overall, we thought the, the prospects were there. We thought that there were companies that could survive that long. You know, you know every now and then you get one of these things where uh, I'm just reading you know, which were the five biggest companies in America 10 years ago versus today, and they changed. Yeah. So the sustainability of the company itself becomes one of the assets that you have to evaluate as you look at them going forward. And how do you you avoid the attachment? Because obviously having a business for 37 years, to be able to sell that, again, requires, you talk about discipline, it really does, but from a portfolio standpoint and selling the stock in a company you might like to selling an absolute business. How do you do that? Well, I think, you know, you, you go back to comments I made about competition. Uh, I've usually looked at business opportunities by virtue of, you know, who could compete with me? What, what will be their cost of entry, etc. And at times, companies' values got beyond what I thought were reasonable. I mean, I invented equity office properties mm-hmm. and I built it into a $39 billion company. I never thought 
that anybody would try and take over the company. It was too big. But when they, you know, when they came down the pike and they were offering me a, a number that didn't relate to my own assessment of the situation, uh, it was relatively easy to cross over and say, you know, it's worth X and somebody's going to pay me X plus X. Uh, you know, next. Hmm. Right, <laughs> right. Now, people claim it, that was all about uh, market timing. I don't, I don't even know what market timing is. Uh, I think if market timing means that when somebody is willing to pay you too much for something, that may be the market timing that you're mm-hmm. looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, but as long as, as, long as the, the relevance of what you're doing uh, is understanding that anytime you own an asset, uh, that, that you're at your entry point or your cost point is below that which a potential competitor might come into, that's levels of disruption that ultimately lead to destruction. When you look around, uh, today, are there particular industries that you see as, um, you know, reaching that point where people are putting more value on it than it really is worth that you would, you know, be looking as major risks? Well, as I said, I don't buy markets, but uh, what I would say is that uh, there are certain elements of real estate uh, that I think are certainly questioning uh, whether you're getting an adequate return for the risk you're taking. Um, I mean, something like real estate, I think today uh, is, is uniquely risk, uh, risk-free in the minds of investors. And, and history says that's never been the case. And I wouldn't vote for the theme case today. It's interesting how short memories are because it really wasn't that long ago that they got burned with that same logic um, the sure. last time. But what do they say? History doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes, and it sure seems to be. Well, <laughs> you know, Santiana said, he who fails to learn from history is condemned to mm-hmm. repeat. Mm-hmm. But but that's if we are in another real estate bubble, that that sounds pretty good news for you, Sam, because you navigated the last one right? <laughs> pretty flawlessly. <Perfect>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're doing we're you know we've done well in the real estate business, not being being crazy, but and by being sane and and uh, and focusing on logical trends. You know, you got to remember that in real estate a great deal of the value of creation comes inside the land. So the land right. is the accordion. And you know, brick and mortar goes up 10%, 7%, whatever. But the real key is the land accordion. And to the extent that you can anticipate that direction and, and recognize it, uh, I mean, in 2000, um, I think an FAR or Florio ratio in New York City was 50 bucks. You know, it's, it's big pricing of land. By 2007, it was 1,500. Uh, you don't need a PhD. 
nothing wrong here. Right. Oh my gosh. Right. And and yet many people did need a PhD, and many people with PhDs yeah. couldn't figure out something yeah. like the entire right. Federal Reserve staff. So, Sam, Sam, how has the how has the pandemic affected both kind of your your business mix and your philosophy and, and the way you think about risk? I think that. Uh, we view the pandemic as uh, something that happens periodically. Um, I don't know how we can risk, de-risk it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can be a little more careful. We can, you know, run, you know, we can require vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we've done. I've been here every day since the pandemic began. And for the first three months, I was the only one here. Right. But, you know, I also don't believe in motivation by modem. And uh, and I think all this uh, work from home uh, BS is really BS. And uh, I don't think you can develop a company, a camaraderie, a future uh, through Zoom. Mm-hmm. That's another in- so, interesting thing that you talk about in in your book is how you really you could probably sit in your office and have people come through and visit with you all day, but you like to go out and see people in their on their own turf and you know get a real feel that way. I mean, do you are you? Well, we just this morning we just scheduled a bunch of, of trips for the next six eight weeks back to companies that we haven't been okay. to for one reason or another, just to say hello and right. make sure they knew we, had, we were still there. That's what I was going to ask. Uh, you probably right. had to miss out uh, on that for a while. Yeah. yeah. I, think every, I, think, I think every business suffers from a lack of uh, attention. So, uh, and you get, you get real results from attention. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also travel internationally quite a bit too. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I want to hear about your latest. When was the last Zell's Angels trip? <laughs> about about 10 days ago. Oh, we, we spent six days in Tuscany. And, um, you know, when you, when you look at motorcycle trips, you kind of uh, prioritize what's important. Uh, the guys are important. The weather is important. The hotel is important, the food, the wine, uh, and the roads. And uh, this just happened to be one of the most perfect trips one, one can ever ask for. The weather was perfect. The guys were perfect. Uh, uh, the hotel, just everything was just great. And, and, and the roads in Tuscany, I mean, you go out the front door of the hotel, you go right, you go left, and all you get are twisty, turny roads. Fantastic. And, and the food and the food and the wine are obviously guaranteed yeah. to be good. <laughs> and and the oldest guy is 82. Wow. Amazing. And I'm the second oldest. Amazing. And we've been doing this for 35 years. That's right. And these Fantastic. are people that you've been in the business with forever. And yep. yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, it seems like, you know, when we keep coming back to the question of where you get your ideas and how you decide to do deals. Um, it seems like you have sort of 
cobble together in your career a core group of people that you go back to uh, frequently and do deals with and that you've sort of cobbled together uh, a little entourage (laughs) of entrepreneurs that you you're able to work together. That's, you know, that's what makes it interesting. You know, it's, I, I no longer work for monetary objectives. They give it away anyway. Uh, so the real, the real objective is how do you make it interesting? How do you make yeah. it challenging? And how do you affect other people as well as them affecting you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the ultimate challenge. So, Sam, do you, do you think there's a there's a there will come a point where you slow down, or will you just continue to do what you do indefinitely? You know, people ask me that question all the time, and uh, and my answer is slow down from what or retire from what. I like what I do. I find it challenging. Uh, I certainly need challenge. I don't play golf. Uh, you know, so so when you do, I do deals. Uh-huh. And as long as I can intellectually handle, uh, you know, the challenge, uh, it's going to keep me sharper and keep me better going forward. Yeah. I don't think you have anything to worry about on that score. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sam. This has been a wonderful conversation. You know, you can just feel your energy and your passion for what you do. And it's just effusive. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. This is really fun, guys. Sam, thank you very much. It's been a real thrill. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. And then there were two. And then there were two. Oh, man. That was fascinating. Isn't he awesome? He is unbelievable. I mean, really, just what a remarkable man. He's so cool. I just love him. But anyway. It's so fascinating listening to him talk just how much of this is innate. Right, we, yeah. we, we, everybody spends so much time trying to figure out how to be better at this and better at that. And then there are people like Sam Zell who just have a feel yeah. for it and a sense of the right thing to do and timing and all that stuff. And, you, you know, you can't teach that, which is why I was curious as to if there's anything he had to get rid of, any habits he had to kind of right. get rid of. That Because that, if, if, you, if you have that kind of innate feel for this stuff and you can just get the hell out of your own way. Yeah. It must just be fantastic. Well, I think the other great asset for him is his background. You know, his, yeah. his parents fled the Holocaust um, and came to this country. And his dad, I think, was a grain trader in Poland, but he couldn't get a job here in the U.S. Um, so he started selling jewelry. I mean, and he somehow built himself up to be a very successful jewelry salesman, even though he had never done that before, you know, and and he's instilled in Sam, I guess, that kind of, there's nothing that can stop you, you know, just go do it um, mentality. And, you know, you shouldn't be playing basketball. You should be out there figuring out what the next business is, you know? So at 12, he's selling Playboy magazines to his, uh, you know, horny little teenage buddies. (laughs) I mean that is that is that is a market for which there is an infinite demand for right. sure. But oh, for sure. but yeah, but I, but I do wonder. You know, when Sam said that, it, it made me think about. It. He said, you know, when his uh, family came to uh, to America and, and there was nothing to stop you doing anything. You know, you kind of look around now and with regulations and all the stuff that's happened. You know, Sam compared it with Europe and the problems in Europe, and it 
feels as though maybe it's 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 a natural part of the arc and, and a country like America gets gets great by it not being in anybody's way and then ultimately it gets regulated to the point where it just it just you know, spoils the advantages it once had. Well, the other thing that I thought you were going to go on is the contrast between this driving work ethic and this just rabid desire to achieve versus what we're seeing today where you know, at least part of this labor shortage is attributable to people saying, hey, I don't need to get off the sofa. The government's paying me to sit here and I'd rather, you know, play video games on my sofa or whatever these people are doing than actually go out and try to be an entrepreneur and try to be like Sam Zell. Um, it's just that contrast is so stark to me. I, I wish I had asked them about that, but I suspect I know what his answer would have been. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. it definitely wouldn't have flown in his household at all. No, for sure. But it, it's funny, isn't it? You know, when, when you when you talk to someone who who has that innate sense of this, which which Sam has, and you know, he explains it away in a kind of self-effacing, self-deprecating way. Right, and, and I right. guess that's all you can do, right? Because how do you know? But you you do get the sense that for him, the it's all about the idea and then the building of it. And, you know, fine, he'll evaluate an opportunity, but it's not about the money. It's not about, and and even, even back then, you get that sense that he just wanted to do deals and wanted yeah. to get involved in stuff and do different things, you know. It's... Uh, yeah. It's just so it's so fascinating to get a chance to speak to him. So thank yeah, you it's on, on behalf of me and everybody listening for no, setting no, this no. up. I mean, I think it's really exciting. And just to you know tie a bow on that point, the the comment he made and it resonated so deeply with me that you know you can't let your brand seem bigger than your performance, and that is kind of part of his self-effacing mentality. I mean, yeah. he's Sam Zell. He could very easily have this sense like, hey, you know. I don't need to listen to these people and and be flexible and look for other, you know, what I might need to get rid of or what I might need to be building a position in. But he does. And that, I think, is why he's, you know, almost 80 and he's still one of the most successful investors out there. Um, It doesn't seem to me like he's lost his edge at all. You know, if anything, he's probably, you know, just honing it sharper with every year but but that's you know it's another great point you bring up because the culture today of investment and people in the industry is absolutely antithesis your brand is everything it's all about i want to be on tv and i want to be famous and i want to be all this stuff and you know ultimately give me one sam zell and i'll give you i'll give you a hundred of all these guys who just want to be you know well-known and have a brand and I just I just don't think there's any longevity to that for the most part I mean there will be some who are successful but well there's also that intoxication of having your ego constantly reinforced you know these people they yeah. go on CNBC and they're touted as you know the, the great genius and they start to let their own sense of self-worth um, sort of Uh, I would say, discharge them from the discipline of their, you know, what they used to do so well of analyzing and thinking um, about ideas. And now they just kind of, well, I'm smart, so I don't need to really do the work. Um, And and clearly that does not apply to Sam at all. No, but but sadly, it does actually work. (laughs) If you have a brand and you're famous, people will invest 
in your ideas just because, oh, yeah, that bloke's famous. He must know what he's doing. I mean, well, I, for I now, suspect this. For now. <laughs> well, I was just saying, I was just about like, to say, I suspect this will come crashing to a halt. Yes. But um, maybe not just yet. I think well, I, like, um, yeah. Sorry. Go on. Good. I mean, there are any number of PT Barnums out there today that we could point to, but the point is made. Ain't, ain't that the truth? <laughs> ain't that the truth? Well, we can we can allow, but everyone can point to their own one. We, all, we I'm sure we'll land upon a very small number of names, even. Yes. But um, well, Steph, I guess uh, I guess that's it for another super terrific happy hour. That's and it. How super and terrific was that? It was absolutely loved it. So Thank much. you for for doing that with me. So much fun. Well, all that remains is to thank you for listening to us. Um, if you don't uh, follow us already, you can do that. Uh, I don't think there's any need for us to tell you how to follow Sam right. Zell because just Google Sam Zell. Right. <laughs> You'll find everything you need to know. Steph and I are a little different. If you want to follow me, you can do so on Twitter. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at S Pomboy. At S Pomboy, she remains. Steph, until the next time, I hope we do this again very, very soon. Pip pip and cheerio. <laughs> Nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.